Welcome to an exceptional edition of Rebellion's educational series. I'm here with a professor from Wellesley College on to talk about a subject I'm personally very passionate about, universal pre-K education. Professor Beattie, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Um, I've been an advocate of universal preschool education my entire life. Um, since I started teaching kindergarten in the Boston Public Schools in 1968. So um, this is a passion for me as well. Why don't I start off, well, do you want to ask me some questions first? And My first question, which will really get you and get the ball rolling here, is how critical is pre-K? I just, I don't think America realizes, Professor, that universal pre-K makes such a difference for a potential human life. We're talking about a, a huge percentage chance between a failure and not a failure in a human existence. So for, for me, it's, it's mission critical when it comes to UPK. Well, I agree with you. And one short way of putting it is that children from what we call underserved backgrounds start kindergarten far behind. Mm. And if they don't have UPK, to get them closer to the start for you know, children from middle and upper income backgrounds, they never catch up. So start behind, stay behind, which means the whole ideology we have of equal educational opportunity is sort of dead from the start. I mean, we can talk about it, but it's a myth. No. And the only way to really start making good on that promise is to have, and I would argue we've got, it's gotta be universal because you're not gonna get high quality unless it's universal. Right now we have targeted, fine. We can start with targeted, but if we don't move toward universal, programs are gonna be segregated by income background. I mean, and that's part of the problem. Can the government start rolling out you know, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 uh, pre-K organizations throughout the country to start acting as a, you know, a net or a beginning, if you will? Is this something that can be achievable in the, the near term? Okay, in the first place, we already have thousands of programs for what's called Early Childhood Care and Education, ECCE. And in fact, we have a, a huge patchwork. So we've got We've got nursery schools, we've got pre diverse kinds of private and public preschools, we've got preschools in public schools, we've got childcare centers, we've got tax credits, we've got federal block grants, we've got Head Start, we've got family programs, we've got various kinds of, you know, group programs, we've got public, private, we've got programs with huge tuitions, we've got sliding scale, I mean, we don't have, we have an enormous amount of all over the place um, forms of ECCE, that's what I'm calling early childhood care and education. So we've already got a lot, but it's not, it's not coordinated oh. and quality is a huge issue because all of the research and your grandmother did some terrific research on effects and evaluation all of the research shows that the only way that you get positive lasting effects, 
high quality. Yes, without a doubt. And that's what class size, of course, is so important. And so with the low-income families, if we have, you know, these just terrible you know, situations offered to them, it's not going to be that much better. There have to be minimum standards, uh, you know. And I think my, my sense is the direction we're going, and this is what President-elect Biden's program, and I would argue, I, I think it's, it looks like a good program, um, is that you've got federal flow-through funding. So we need more of that. We need a lot more federal funding, but then it flows through to the states and you have your quality control at the state level. So states have boards of early education, just the way they have state education boards, right? And those boards set quality controls around class size, teacher credentials, teacher pay. Whoa, I mean, and so you, it flows through to the state. That's where the quality control happens. And then it goes down to the local level to all of those different kinds. It's called a, it's called a multiple provider model. Um, and that makes use of the net, but then it really, it's not a system, but that makes use of all the existing providers. It's a multiple service delivery model, but it also provides quality control. Now, it's not going to be easy, but we have to do it. We have to do it. And right now, we especially have to do it because with the crisis, the COVID crisis with childcare and the economic crisis, um, this is a pivotal moment. We've absolutely got to do this. And it's costing us money. There are, there are research programs, like for instance, the Perry Preschool Project, that's shown that for every dollar invested, we save 13. So there are strong, I mean, Jim Heckman, Nobel Prize winning economist, there's, there's strong evidence that this is gonna save us money. Of course, you're talking about creating an, an active contributing member of society versus not. And so you're talking about making America better and stronger versus creating more liability, if you will, for America. Yeah, and so and I, I would argue that the, there've been two main obstacles. And this is something I've done research on for years. I mean, I document this in my book, Preschool Education in America, um, and in a lot of other things I've written. That the two main obstacles, the biggest one has always been money. And the way we, for instance, we didn't used to have kindergarten education. And in fact, you know, there are eight, I think it's eight states that still do not require districts to offer kindergarten. You want to take a guess? Well, we don't have to, but eight states. So we didn't used to have kindergarten education. And the way we got it is by, really it was women. Um, women decided that they were going to make this, this was, I would argue, it was the first successful women's cause in which women all around the country organized. And they, it was a political organization. It's like anything else. You're going to get money. You've got to understand the politics. So they, for instance, would write model kindergarten bills. They would find out when the state legislature met. They would give the bill in advance to the legislature. Often they would make friends with the wife of the governor. 
So she'd be telling him at home. So they would introduce, they would have the bill all written, give it to members, they would find out who would be the right person, give it to members of the legislature. And they did that over and over and over again, state by state. That's how we got kindergartens. Well, you mentioned earlier eight states don't have pre-K. I'm guessing these are eight states that are don't not- have kin Don't require kindergarten. Don't, don't require kindergarten. Oh my God, really? That's, <laughs> uh, it's just so, it, it makes me so upset to think about a, a five or six year old with no place to go. It's for this country that spends so much money on so many projects. I really can't imagine that creating a safety net for education for our two to three to four to six year olds around America guaranteed can be that costly. I just can't imagine it. Do, do you have any idea about the figures? Is this something you think it is achievable or am I wrong here? You know, it's going to cost a lot of money and the figures vary enormously. Um, and they vary in part because it's going to cost different amounts of money in different states. Um, I don't want to give you a figure right now because it's, no. it's also going to depend on whether or not we start including three-year-olds. Yeah, That's of course. Of course. Right? It depends and whether or not we move from targeted to universal. Right? So the amount of money is going, we're, we're probably going to start targeted and I hope we'll move toward universal. Um, yes, it's going to be expensive, but not doing it is more expensive. Oh, without a doubt, Japan has 100% pre-K rate and the difference in their education and their output per capita is, is significant. And we are the third lowest of the OECD countries in the world industrialized. We're the third mm -hmm. lowest in terms of providing federally funded services for young children. Wow, that's unbelievable. With the amount of government waste that goes on today, I, I, I personally believe that UBK must be provided for, I, I would say three-year-olds too, maybe I'm just a, a dreamer, but you know, I, I think that there are certain expenses that must be taken by the government and educating our very young children is an expense that must be undertaken. It's something that will, as you said, pay us back in time. So it's a great investment, but I think that there are also certain moral responsibilities we have as a society. And it's something that I personally feel that it's a responsibility we have. It's, you know, whether or not it's even economically sound, which you say it's very economically sound, a 13 to one payout is fantastic. Well, that's, you know, what one program, that's what the Perry Preschool Project, which is one program has been touting. You know, it, it varies and there's some research, the research goes back and forth. Um, but the other obstacle that I see that we used to have was the idea of the public child versus the private child. Mm. In the United States, we don't think of children under five as being public. But for instance, in Sweden, it's not just in the Scandinavian countries, but there's a different relationship between the child and the state. Children are seen from when they're born as being sort of part of, they're, they're, they are incipient public citizens with rights. Mm -hmm. So this, it's a different kind of relationship. We don't have that. We have, a, 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 we, and let me give you a, one example that's so powerful. So I mean, I have to, this is just something I wanna read President Nixon's veto wording to the Comprehensive Child Development Act that Walter Mandel and John Bradamus got passed through the Senate 
bipartisan in 1971. So we had it. It passed. It went to Nixon's desk. Let me just read what Nixon said. Actually, this is from Pat Buchanan. By the way, my father, Dr. David Fleiss, was at uh, one time a speechwriter for uh, Walter Mondale when he was in the Senate. Just wanted to... Mondale is, Mondale is one of my big heroes. I mean, Mondale got this through and it got through the Senate. It got through the Senate 63 to 17. So it would have provided everything, childcare, preschool, medical services, food, you know, the whole nine yards. And it passed. So it goes to Nixon's desk and people actually thought he was going to sign it because it was, this is the, you know, this is the height of second wave feminism. So there was a lot of support for it, for it from women's groups um, and it was bipartisan. So it gets to his desk and he vetoes it. And here's the wording of the veto. The veto was that we would commit the vast moral authority of the national government to the side of communal approaches to childbearing over against the family-centered approach. So classic Cold War anti-communist wording. Pat Buchanan wrote it, and he wrote it to escalate a culture war. And because he invented the term the silent majority. So what happened is the bill came back in 73. And this, that was the year the Equal Rights Amendment passed. So the bill comes back in 73, but um, it was a less, it was a scaled down version, cheaper, um, but it died, it passed the Senate, it died in the House. So in 75, when the bill came back for the last time, and this, you just, people don't know about this part of it. When the bill came back for the last time, there was a grassroots movement of conservative evangelicals, a lot of them women. And they had seen, and they, it distributed an anonymous flyer that said that if the bill passed, it would make it illegal for parents to send their children to church. And they would also, anonymous flyer, where have we heard this? Only now it's on the internet. And it said it would also give children the right to sue their parents. And so a lot of evangelical women's groups started a letter writing campaign and it was successful and the bill died permanently. So I think, I don't think, I don't sense that there's the same kind of um, conservative resistance now. But if you have the kind of flow through program with multiple providers, then some of these are going to be in churches. Some of these will be religiously affiliated. Some of these will, you know, your parents will be able to choose the kind of program that they're comfortable with for their child. So you would be able to choose a program that you thought was the right program for your child. So I think that's the way, and there's some benefits to having that private aspect. And it allows parents, for instance, you're gonna get more multiculturalism of different types. You're gonna get diversity. You're gonna get broader buy-in. You're gonna get convenience. It could be a local program, right? So I think there's a reason to balance. And I think you, if you understand that, the community, not communal, but the community, I wanna make that distinction, 
It's very sad um, that it was shot down because of a loose association with communism. I mean, Richard Nixon's presidency is definitely an interesting historical time period. I, I did, I would say I was amused to listen to a few hours of his tapes just for the sake of understanding who the man was. I would call him a mixture of a sociopath and a psychopath. You know, you have to understand Richard Nixon woke up on Christmas Day, Professor, and said, he looked, apparently he, he said, he, he, I looked at the Christmas tree and I said to myself, by God, we've got to bomb, bomb them, in referred reference to the uh, Northern Vietnamese. I mean, how is it that one can associate uh, Christmas Day and a Christmas tree with bombing the North Vietnamese? How, how could anyone's brain work that way? But nevertheless, that is how President Nixon's brain worked. So, you know, anyway, to, to anyone who wants to learn about history, I would highly recommend the Nixon tape. So much on there. I, I grew up in Southern California with parents who were um, college professors and very liberal Democrats. So I heard anti-Nixon <laughs> um, discourse all of my young life. I mean, that's what my parents, we were constantly talking about it. That's what I grew up listening to. So you don't have to convince me. But I do think he was pivotal. I think that there was a real shift. That's where you get the shift to the Southern strategy. That's where you get the, I, that's where you create the, you know, real politics of, you know, divisive politics that changed the, you know, sort of the various alignments. Um, and it, it, that was part of what was going on with how this bill got killed. And, we're at a point where we've got to get beyond that. And I do think there's bipartisan support for this. Um, when voters- I very much see LBJ in Biden. For me, Biden is this you know, man who knows how, you know, Obama's biggest complaint about Biden was that he was always trying to make a deal. And <laughs> something that I found very interesting that I read in the Times two weeks ago is that the only Republican Senator at Biden's son's funeral was McConnell. And when McConnell's daughter drowned, apparently Biden spent a lot of time alone with McConnell. And then my father and I watched McConnell's goodbye speech to Joe Biden in 2016 when he was stepping down to, you know, give the vice presidency to, um, uh, to what's, uh, I can't even remember Trump's vice president, uh, Pence, that's it. But anyway, the point is, when I watched McConnell's speech about uh, Biden, I, I teared up. It was extremely touching. And so when you have two men that are this close, whose friendship transcends politics, there's a real good chance for great bipartisan effort. And, 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 and you know, legislation like UPK and infrastructure are legislation that has huge bipartisan approval rating. It's hard to convince someone not to take some federal money and put it towards educating our four and five-year-olds. It's just such a, it's a great investment, but it's also a huge moral responsibility where I think, you know, you'll find now maybe, you know, that, that's an issue where we could get to the left and the right behind. And maybe now the evangelicals would be behind this, seeing as otherwise you're leaving these children in a, a very tough place otherwise. As we discussed, you know, the futures are very poor. If a child does not get good, pre-K education. It's just unbelievable that the trajectory falls immensely. And that is what, you know, personally made me so passionate about it. Uh, it just, I, just well, I, I, I have to, I do have to mention though, okay. and this is related to high quality 
And yeah. it, is, it is related to expense, but it's also related to understanding how to do this right, doing the kind of research your grandmother did about quality. Um, just, my, my grandmother was the Dean of Students of Funder College and some give her credit as a co-founder of the Head Start Foundation. Uh, the New York Times did in one article, but she didn't call herself that. She said the Head Start Foundation was started by a few people and then they brought her on. But she, she was like, you know, number three or four at the Head Start Foundation. But she did research. She did evaluation research. So she was looking at- oh, Yeah, no, of course, on top of that. But She uh, was looking at quality issues. In fact, you know, she, I told you this, this is part of how we connected. Um, she, I was the first teacher of Boston's first all-day kindergarten program, um, which was federally funded, and um, it was in Roxbury, and so it was for underserved children, and your grandmother came and evaluated the program. And this was a period when, so this would have been 72, and this was a period, 71, 72, this was, was a also on the Board of Education for the state of New York then, so maybe that was... That's partly why she would have been picked. So this was a period when, you know, all my friends were starting to go to law school, and you, and this, I'm bringing this back to an issue, which is well-educated, well-paid teachers. So I was thinking I had to go to law school, right? Status. And your grandmother said to me, Barbara, you're really good. You're good at this. So why don't you think about a career in preschool education? And I went on to the Harvard Grad School of Education. I became a preschool director and then child development and then decided that I would write my first book about the history of how we got mm. our first public preschool programs, which were kindergartens. But the point I'm going to is that we're going to have to find a way to provide more support, including funding, including education opportunities for what's known as the overall early childhood education and care workforce. Because right now the turnover is just horrendous and they don't get respect. They don't get support. And part of, I agree with you, it's a moral issue. And I would agree with you, not only is it immoral to children, it's immoral to teachers. And most of the teachers who are in the private programs are low-income women, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. That's who's teaching in Head Start, the, the assistant teachers who work their way up. So the, there are issues here about sort of ec overall equity and lack of respect for the, you know, for, for children, um, for families, but especially, I'll be straightforward about it, for low-income women. Oh. No, I mean, I look at how, for instance, uh, Norway runs their pre-K, and it's, it's amazing. You're talking about uh, child-to-teacher ratios when they're three and four years old of like three to one, two and a half to one. I mean, numbers that are unheard of in America, just uh, that are a fairy tale here. I know, I know. You know, I have to tell you a little story. When I was, um, we were in Chile, and I what stopped at a, a Chiloé, which is an island you can only get to by boat. Mm -hmm. And so it was in this small town, and I was walking around, and I saw this building with little children playing, and I thought to myself, that's a preschool. So I said, can I come in? And here was a purpose-built building. It wasn't a basement or something. Mm -hmm. 
built just to be a preschool, all federally funded. It was charming. And the state head for the evaluation was visiting that day. And the whole thing was free. The whole thing was federally funded. Class size was really small. They had, you know, playgrounds. They had all the equipment, child size, right? And this is in a little isolated island in Chile. No. Why can't we do that? No. no, I mean, there's so much money put towards uh, education later in life, but so many lives are already decided later in life. And, you know, the percent change earlier in life is so much greater. So, you know, when you invest from what I have studied, when you invest more in a three and four year old, you'll get a much higher return than a 13 or 14 year old especially if that 13 and 14 year old is already on a bad track, it's harder to you know, bring them back, if you will. Well, one of the things though I do have to, and the research from these experimental models does show things like, um, again, problematic aspects in terms of sample size, um, you know, all the kinds of issues that researchers know about. But, you know, more people graduate from high school, get a job, go to college, um, own a house, don't become pregnant as teenagers. I mean, all those kinds of social impacts, in fact, seem to be more powerful in some ways than the academic impacts. And that's because of the whole question of fade. And the fading is the fading of the academic scores. And the mostly, um, I would argue almost entirely, it's because most of the underserved children who are getting the pre-K, you pre-K pre, pre programs to, to, you know, to catch up, then they go on in underserved schools. And so the, the effects that got them caught up start to fade. So this has to be a comprehensive system. And I would argue what we need are, it's a new kind of school. It's called a pre-K three school because it's a school that really understands young children the needs of young children. So you're going to have smaller class sides. You're going to have programs and equipment made for young children. So you're not going to have, when I was teaching kindergarten in Boston, you know, here were all these big kids out on the playground. There was nothing. I had to, you know, buy a bunch of things for just for the smaller kids. But pre-K three schools um, are a way of coordinating and watching and keeping those games there. And that's, you know, so there are ways we can think very creatively about how we can structure going forward this new world. Well, can we learn anything from COVID? Can we use COVID to help us? I mean, do you, do you have any feelings on that, Professor? Well, COVID, I mean, obviously desperate need for childcare. The kinds of programs we want are, are programs that we have, and this is COVID would be a, a strong rationale for what are called wraparound services, which means that you've got early morning programs. If people have to start to work early, the programs you could drop your kids off at seven o'clock, say, mm -hmm. and they could have breakfast and they could stay until six mm -hmm. um, or even sometimes. So you'd have a wraparound program with the middle of the day, but then you could have before school and after school programs. Point of service, the best point of service for healthcare needs for young children, if you're going to get vaccinations, all that kind of stuff, testing. When do kids first meet 
a public point of service? When? Three years old, four years old? Maybe, yeah. So they're going to meet in, right, in a preschool. That's the first time you're going to find a group of children where you can have a public point of service. They're there, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can do the testing. You can do, you know, all the kinds of health, nutrition. I mean, you know, one of the tragedies right now with COVID, you know this. It's not just COVID. It's the economy. Food insecurity in America. Oh, oh. I mean, we've got children going to bed hungry. Yeah, no, food insecurity for children is a must. And that's... The program I ran... I had breakfast and I had a hot lunch and then we had afternoon snacks and you've got to be thinking that's, it's got to have wraparound services. So you've got flex, more flexible hours. So you've got, you know, food and healthcare. And I mean, there were kids in my class who needed glasses. Right. No, of course. Um, Yeah. So this is the point of service. This is the point of entry where all of these unified services, comp- that's why it was called comprehensive. Your points all show that this really is mission critical, that this really does make or break when it comes to a child's future. And so <laughs> we're either going to save a lot more Americans going forward, or we're going to let a lot more Americans you know, fall to the wayside. So like I said, for, for me, this is not kind of, uh, you know, academic banter. This is something that needs to be solved immediately. And the idea that there are hungry children is another moral responsibility I feel that our civilization has. You know, Rome always, you know, felt they must feed their hungry citizens. And I I just, I cannot abide by having starvation or hunger in a country as successful as America. You know also what happens if kids are this food insecure? You can see it in their brain development. You can see it in their physical development. I mean, these are kids, for instance, there was a famous study on the Netherlands during the Nazi occupation, and they could track. There was that set of children going all the way through, and they were smaller all the way through their lives because of a period of desperate food insecurity. So we've got right now a time, and if you got them into preschool programs, food, right? If you got them into preschool programs, we could try and start to prevent what I'm terrified at what's going to happen with the kids who've been out right now. I'm terrified as well, Professor. I, I, I know there such attrition has happened in their educational studies. And as someone who teaches math, I know how quickly you lose focus if just a week or two you're missing assignments and your ability to comprehend the, the architecture of what you're learning just all of a sudden falls apart. It's so hard. Math is, is, is like a quilt and so many subjects are like a quilt where if you lose a little bit, the whole thing falls apart. But anyway, this has been an amazing talk, Professor. Really one of the, the best shows we've ever done at Rebellion Research. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Beattie. I guess... Before we conclude, do you have any parting thoughts for our viewers? I think we have to see this as something that for all of us, um, it's not just one of the problems is we think, oh, little children, then they grow up. We think we have to think about this for all of us in every possible way, that this is a total investment. It's a comprehensive total investment for all of our society and for democracy, because these are children 
who are going to be citizens. These are children who are going to be voters and they need to be healthy. They need to have been well-educated and they need to have been seen all the way through. So this is a comprehensive total investment that we have to see it's for all of us. It's not just about little children. I couldn't agree more, Professor. Well, you stay safe during these crazy times and all my best and uh, the honor is all mine this